The following program is for informational and educational purposes only. This program does not replace medical, mental health, or psychological diagnosis and treatment prescribed by your personal physician, psychologist, therapist, or other health care provider. Please consult your provider for diagnosis and care before beginning or changing any program or idea discussed. Welcome to Psych Up Live with your host, Dr. Suzanne Phillips. If you're experiencing life, and we know you are, you may have a variety of questions about relationships, family issues, personal goals, coping with the unexpected, and much more. Today, you will hear some answers from a psychological perspective, and you may just take away something that fits. Here is Dr. Suzanne Phillips. Hi, I'm Suzanne Phillips. Thanks for joining me on Psych Up Live. Today we are speaking about the immigration crisis, an attorney's insider perspective. While the media has shifted its focus in the last few weeks, the immigration crisis goes on, with the detention of children in youth migrant centers, tent camps, and foster care placement the separation of families, the deportation of undocumented people, and the anxiety of those unable to obtain a green card or to start the citizenship process. One group of professionals that has been in the forefront of this crisis are the immigration attorneys, many of whom are doing pro bono work or have traveled to different parts of the country to respond. Our guest today is an attorney who has been up close to many aspects of this process. Sarah Rogerson is a clinical professor of law at Albany Law School, where she directs the Immigration Law Clinic, an experiential course through which students represent immigrant victims of crime, including child abuse and neglect, domestic violence, and sexual assault. Professor Rogerson worked as a public interest attorney in Newark, New Jersey, and has represented immigrant adults and children in cases involving torture, domestic violence, and human trafficking, also at a human rights nonprofit in Dallas, Texas. Her scholarship is focused on the intersection between domestic violence, family law, race, gender, international law, and immigration law and policy. She's a regular contributor to WAMC Radio's The Roundtable. Sarah Rogerson, it is my privilege to welcome you to Psych Up Live. Thank you so much for having me on. Okay. Now, as we both know, immigration is both a confusing and a contentious topic. Let's start by clarifying some aspects of immigration law that most people, including myself, really don't know enough about. Often I ask, and I think others do, why don't undocumented folks who work and live in this country, often for many years, why don't they apply for citizenship? What are the pathways? What are the obstacles? Well, unfortunately, our immigration code is is dated. It hasn't it hasn't had a, a makeover for very many years, and and the problem is that um, any sort of changes to our immigration law have been done on a piecemeal basis. So we have this bizarre patchwork. Um, many have called it a labyrinth of of path of pathways to uh, naturalized status. And so there are, there are so many families in the United States who are what we call mixed status families. And that is to say, you may have 
you know, two family members who are U.S. citizens and then another family member with a, who's a green card holder, another family member who, who came in at a different time in our laws who, who doesn't qualify for any form of relief. And every single person in that family could have a different form of status. The, the backlog in the meantime is growing and growing. So the line, when people say, you know, why can't people just, just legalize the way that my, our grandparents did when they came over from England or France or Ireland or Italy, uh, it's because the laws didn't exist back then. Um, immigration law is a very new law in this country. Originally, immigration law was actually ceded to the states, and the word immigration doesn't even show up in the Constitution. Mm. So, yeah, we're talking about a, a, a pathway that is crooked, that doesn't fit most people, and that is really experiencing a severe backlog. So people are waiting in line for up to 20 years to enter the country lawfully. Uh, We really need to redesign the whole thing. So when you talk about this very complicated system, what I've come to know a little bit, and maybe you could help us understand it even more thoroughly, is so for me to get a green card, I am going to follow a situation where different people have different preference. So if I have a spouse who's a U.S. citizen, I have a slightly better chance than if it's my parent who's a citizen. Is that right? Well, yes. Yeah. So the, the, in the in the regulations and in the immigration scheme, the United States Citizenship and Immigration Services, which is the part of immigration that actually processes visa applications, they have um, preference schemes and priorities um, and categories of, of folks who are are preferred, especially in our family migration, family based migration. So. There are there are these categories in terms of um, who who the United States would prefer to let in first. That being said, those types of of migration patterns are being restricted further and further under this administration. Even the lawful paths, including uh, crackdown on spouses, uh, one of the most recent big stories to hit was that individuals who are working at the United Nations in New York City uh, who have a a particular visa to do so may not um, be permitted in the future to bring their spouse uh, if they're in a same-sex relationship if if they aren't if the marriage is not legally recognized in their country, um, which wow. sounds a little obscure, but in practice what that does is because the United States is one of a handful of countries in the world uh, to, uh, to, to um, protect same-sex marriage in the immigration process, it really um, interrupts family unity for those folks um, who are doing you know, the, the government's work, uh, working with our government. So you can imagine how the average citizen, um, the average foreign citizen, is treated as they're making these applications, especially for the types of status that result in citizenship. So that's the thing to, to, to know, too, is that if you're trying to come into, this, into the United States and you don't 
intend to stay, uh, you're more likely to get a visa than if you are intending to stay. So mm-hmm. there are these categories of visas. There's the non-immigrant visa and then an immigrant visa. And the difference is whether or not you intend to try to get on that path to, to, to citizenship. And we really disincentivize the immigrant visas in a lot of different ways, even under this administration for humanitarian cases and children and orphans. Mm. Let me go to one group that bewildered me. I, I knew of people who were professionals and who were working at firms and, of course, their employers were writing whatever they needed to, but it bewildered me as to why it still took them 15 or 20 years for an engineer, let's say, to get to be granted citizenship. And then I learned about the country quotas, and maybe you could mention something about that. Yeah, so... Uh- the truth is that our immigration system is is rooted and it has its origins in country based preferences is is the is the uh, neutral way to say it but what it really is 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 sanctioned racism so mm-hmm. we from the from the very early time in our immigration law we we excluded for example one of the earliest immigration laws is the Chinese Exclusion Act which is what it sounds right so mm-hmm. we we've, we've regularly from the beginning uh, from the early 20th century have structured this new immigration law around preferences and disincentives for uh, certain people based on where they come from, literally. So it, it, it's not surprising then that we see even in modern immigration law country-by-country uh, country preferences, and it's not... Uh, it's not a, a leap to say that the countries that are preferred and, and that this president has go on, gone on record to say that he prefers are Euro-dominant, you know, white, largely homogenous countries. And mm-hmm. those that are, in, that are not preferred um, or included in, in preference ca- categories or lower in preference categories um, are, are, are largely people of color. And so that's, that's the truth about our immigration laws. It's not hyperbole. It's not a political statement. It just is the way that they were, have been put together. Mm-hmm. Okay, now let's go to another group. Sometimes you'll hear lately more often that someone's been in the country for ten, over 10 years. They're undocumented. And in one case, um, the uh, I think it's, it's Diana Guerra whose book is um, The Country I Love, My Family Divided. She comes home to find that both of her parents have been deported. She's only 15 at the time. And so the question becomes, well, why wouldn't someone who's been in this country 10 years and is now very nervous given zero tolerance and the atmosphere with respect to immigration why wouldn't that person just apply for citizenship? After all, they've been here often making a contribution to our culture, our economy. What makes it difficult for them to apply? 
there just isn't a pathway. So if they came in unlawfully, there are all of these penalties uh, for what's called unlawful presence. And that's being, you know, the, the time d- during which you've been in the country unlawfully. Uh, there are waivers for certain types of, of pathways. One, uh, unfortunately, most of the, of the pathways for people who have been here for a long time um, involve pain. So if you're a victim of a violent crime, in the United States while you've been here, and a law enforcement official will sign off and say that you've been helpful in the investigation of that crime and that you truly and you can prove that you've been victimized and have suffered greatly, there is a visa for that. Uh, another example is if you are married to a lawful permanent resident, a green card holder, or a United States citizen, and that spouse has abused you or your children, there's a, a visa for that. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. there's not a visa for being a long-term tax-paying, and many, many undocumented people pay taxes. That's there's There are um, comptrollers, including the New York State comptroller, who have taken um, taken an interest in, in calculating some of those amounts. Um, so, and they can pay taxes through um, what's called an ITIN or a tax ID number. You don't need a social security number to pay your taxes. Not a lot of mm-hmm. people know that. So, um, you know, you could be a, a tax-paying, uh, you know, long-term, basically self-identify you know, as a U.S. Um, as an American and still not have lawful status and have zero pathway to gain lawful status without going back to your home country and waiting in those long lines. Now, that's that's the point that I never realized, which is if you go back to your country and you have been here 10 years undocumented, isn't it something like there's a re-entry bar, Sarah, that would put you at the back of the line? You might wait 10 years to get back here? That's true. Yes, there is a penalty that includes a, a bar to re-entry. Um, it can range from two to five years. I think there, there may be more in, in more exceptional circumstances. Um, and, and yeah, that's, that's accurate. So you, you would essentially be dis- disadvantaged further if you leave, uh, in order to try to take a, a legalized route. I mean, and that's why I, I, there were a lot of people forget in this current climate that there were other conservative administrations um, who decided that amnesty was the best route and that there now we have studies showing that that was the right call. Um, because these the, the loss to American society of trying to mass deport you know millions of undocumented Americans essentially who have been here and contributing to the tax base is much higher um, once they're gone you know it it it, it costs our country um, not just the deportation process but in terms of you know losing valuable business owners and contributing members of our society. And there are studies upon studies upon studies that show that from even from, from, from organizations all over the political spectrum, I often direct people to the Cato Institute um, because that is a libertarian or, or right-leaning um, think tank that puts out a lot of information about the value of immigrants to society um, and, and to the tax base. Mm. It's funny, this summer I was in a few places where people 
business owners. Um, we're talking about the stress of having a partner gone, of having um, workers that were so important no longer available. So I, I, I think it's it's a real piece that has gone, you know, unrecognized by those of us who don't face such a crisis and such an enormous crisis in terms of your your life and your family living. Now, let's talk a little bit. We, we have a few more minutes in this segment. Let's talk about asylum seeking. I read one description of a family that just recently came and someone said, knowing what the hurdles are and the detention situation here, why would you come? And the answer was, if your house was burning you would get out of your house no matter what you had to face. And so I think one of the realities, and you certainly would know, is that people come because they are really running from violence, fear, and and true harm. That's true. I mean, another another phrase um, that I've seen, especially with regard to um, Syrian refugees a few years ago, um, was no one puts their baby in the boat unless it's safer than the shore. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's the truth. You know, I, I, people ask this question, and for me, it's almost rhetorical. Having represented asylum seekers for most of my career as, as an attorney, which at this point spans 14 years, mm-hmm. I, I just, it, it's, I, I, it's unfathomable if you're unfamiliar with the asylum process um, and the type of, of folks who have really suffered greatly um, and have have literally um, run here. Some some of my clients have arrived without shoes to mm. this country. I have um, a former client who swam across the Rio Grande when she was eight months pregnant and went into um, early labor in my office when she was wow. here. So, yeah, these are these are desperate situations, um, and for a lot of the kids, they 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 lack a family structure because everyone there, there may be a situation where um, their parents have passed away or been been killed, and their grandparents are unable to to care for them. Um, or there are mm. situations where children have been deliberately targeted um, by. You know, um, drug traffickers, gang recruiters, sure. human traffickers, mm. right? Mm. And and the, the governments are are not are not in a position to protect these children, and so they find their way uh, to through country upon country upon country until they find some place that's safe. And we've put a lot of hard work into making the United States a, a, a safe place. Um, for many I'm children, we, 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 we fail some of our children, but, you know, the United States is a, is still that, that place, um, that, that people look to, to say, hey, I could, I could rebuild my life there. Sarah, I'm going to stop you right there. We're in such an important part of the show, but I, we need to take a break. You've been listening to Psych Up Live. Today, we're talking about the immigration crisis with attorney Sarah Rogerson. She's a clinical professor of law at Albany Law School and the director of the Immigration Law Clinic at Albany Law. Stay with us. We have much more to come. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. What's your coffee story? 
the one that defines who you truly are in a relaxing setting. It's where you share your memories, plan for the future, and talk about the now. My Favorite Coffee Story is here with host Aniko Samoji. We invite you to listen in and share your coffee stories too. Bring your friends or just stop by as we talk about coffee and the inspiring stories that touch our lives every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Success doesn't come by chance. It's a decision to take a chance on you. Attending the University of Choice is a goal, but not a guarantee. Dr. Cynthia Colon offers you the formula of going from good, better, to best and increasing those chances of receiving that yes to your dream university. Get the one-to-one attention every student needs to succeed. Tune in to Destination University, live every Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time and 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Why? Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest, at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now back to Psych Up Live. Welcome back to Psych Up Live. We're speaking about the immigration crisis with professor and attorney Sarah Rogerson. Sarah one of the things that we just left off on was the the unbelievable resilience of children who have gone from country to country with no alternative but to seek asylum somewhere. And the United States is a place that's been associated with humanitarian embrace and asylum seeking. Let's just clarify for our listeners, what's the process for asylum seeking? What is the credible fear interview? Maybe you can help us with that. Yeah, so the the process varies depending on how you arrive in the United States. Um, and when we're talking about the credible fear interview, we're talking about people who present themselves at the southern border. What a lot of people don't realize is that it's an actually a lawful way to enter the country to present yourself at a point of entry and say that you are afraid for your life. And at that point, um, as, as long as you've, you've presented yourself to immigration authorities, that's that's actually provided for in our immigration laws. This current administration is still detaining those individuals, which is not provided for uh, in the law in terms of it's a discretionary function. A lot of immigration law is actually discretionary um, and ceded to the president and to the attorney general. So unfortunately, that means that, that immigration enforcement varies wildly depending on who's in office. So in terms of the credible fear interview process, 
under normal circumstances, what would happen is that someone presents themselves to a point of entry and says, I'm in fear of my life. And within 48 hours, they're interviewed about why they came to this country. Um, and, and if they meet, if they seem to meet the criteria um, of having what's called a credible fear, which means that, uh, that a immigration official um, believes that person's story, uh, believes that it's consistent, and believes that it might have a chance under existing asylum law of being successful. And under normal circumstances, that individual, if they are found to have a credible fear, would be permitted to enter the country, uh, and it, it, they would not be given any status, but they could they they would be provided an opportunity to tell an immigration judge their story and present their case in court. Um, there are ways uh, to file for asylum if if you're, for example, another way that that people file for asylum is they come on a non-immigrant visa, which I mentioned earlier, right? A visa that is temporary or intended to be temporary, and then they. Um, and this is a little bit more rare, you know, so they en- they enter on maybe a visitor's visa or a student visa, and then okay. something happens in their country, or they came with a fear, but they didn't know about the asylum process, they can apply for asylum within one year of arriving in the United States um, if they have what's called a well-founded fear of persecution. So now, asylum, oh, go ahead. Where would, along along the line, where would they find someone like you? How would they, if if I was someone, and, and I'll just say a sidebar, the credible fear interview can be overwhelming. This process can be overwhelming. Some of my colleagues who've worked with torture victims in the Bellevue program, those folks were terrified of an interview because they associated it with, um, you know, interrogations associated with torture. So... They needed not only the help of therapists, but the help of attorneys. And it seems to me everyone, wouldn't you say most people would need an attorney if they were trying to get asylum um, here? Yes. yes, yes, absolutely. In fact, there there was a, a wonderful book that's published called Refugee Roulette. Um, it's it's a it's an important but depressing read. Um, it was written more uh, I'd say more than a decade ago now. But what what they found, um, and this is a, some scholars from uh, a couple of law schools, including Georgetown Law School, um, and what they found was that your likelihood of of getting asylum um, depends on a lot of factors. One of the factors is whether or not the immigration judge is a woman. Uh, female immigration judges at that time had a higher grant rate than male uh, immigration judges, which seems incredibly arbitrary, but they found a connection. And definitely having an attorney present dramatically alters the outcome. Um, Mm -hmm. Most asylum seekers do not have attorneys, most of Mm -hmm. them. Um, But of the ones that do, the vast majority prevail on their claims. So Mm -hmm. that's... the statistics bear out that access to counsel is one of the key indicators of whether or not an asylum claim will be successful. And we do not provide lawyers to asylum seekers. That is not something that our country does. They have they they, they are welcome to hire a lawyer uh, or seek one out. Um, the government provides them with a list of free. Uh, legal service providers that are pre-approved or who have gone through a vetting process. But, of course, those organizations are completely slammed most of the time. So 
oftentimes mm. it's it's faith communities who step in. Um, maybe the individual. I, I've I've worked with a lot of churches to connect with asylum seekers to interview them or talk to them about their case. And I think that you raise a really important point. If you're fleeing for your life and then you arrive in the country and someone with a badge and a very official-looking uniform on is asking you a bunch of really invasive questions, and especially if you're a woman and if sexual assault was part of the uh, of the right. of of what victimized you, yeah, and the and the majority of the officers are male. Um, I think now they've they've changed the policy so that it, it's a, a female officer um, for female asylum seekers, but still. You're still speaking to a government official when, in, in a very precarious point in your journey, and it's really hard to establish trust within five, ten minutes in order for somebody to tell you their deepest, darkest secrets. And that's what I tell my law students. You know, the, the first meeting with your clients, don't expect to get the full story. Don't expect to get any of the story, right? That meeting has a very different purpose. Um, but yet, Absolutely. the way that our system is designed, we just expect people to, and if they're inconsistent later on, including omissions. If mm-hmm. I've had clients who omitted uh, a sexual assault and didn't bring it up until after they had the holistic wraparound care with an attorney and, and psychological support and, you know, it, all yes. of that work, and then were later found to be not credible because they didn't disclose that at the initial credible fear interview, which is just ridiculous given all that we know about trauma-informed uh, Absolutely. Yeah. I have never, I have never met a victim of rape or domestic abuse, etc., who could tell me their story as a narrative, Sarah. That is not the way people encode a traumatic event that feel that's a near-death experience that involves, you know, a significant trauma. It's just not going to be encoded that way until, as you say, they develop a rapport and a safety with attorney, therapist, etc., so we can see how difficult this must be. Now, just bearing on this, I know one of the things you wrote about or you referred to is it's unlikely that if I'm a woman and I'm seeking asylum and my abuse is domestic abuse from a spouse, I'm not going to be taken as serious, nor is that a criteria that will go that is going to push me along to for asylum seeking. Is well, that correct? Yeah. It used to be. So there are five categories under which an individual can claim asylum. It's race, religion, nationality, political opinion, and then membership in a particular social group. Um, and that last category, you'll, you'll notice the absence of gender or gender-based violence. Um, that What has happened since, over the last several decades, as attorneys have argued, that um, that domestic violence can be framed either as a social group or a political opinion. Um, the political opinion is that, you know, women should not be su- subjected to violence at the hands of their of their partners or spouses. Um, and then the social groups vary depending on the country and the, and the context um, because domestic violence, the roots of domestic violence um, change. They're, they're situational. Um, so, we we have to sort of fit people into these these groups, um, and domestic violence was an emerging area. Um, 
that's one of the first law review articles I wrote was about the domestic the the way that domestic violence asylum claims had been shaped in the United States, and it was a big fight for them even to be recognized at all. And now we're seeing, and, and we were making some headway on that. And this administration has actually made it a point to target victims of domestic violence who are seeking asylum um, to discredit their claims. Um, mm. There was a memo that was issued earlier this year by the Attorney General, which indicated that it would be very difficult uh, for victims of domestic violence to qualify under our asylum laws um, and giving asylum officers um, limiting instructions about in what circumstances that might be appropriate. So mm. we, we don't know the full extent of that yet. Um, but, for example, if your abuser is a police officer or somehow tied to the government, then it's, it's a, a better, quote-unquote, claim. Uh, and it's just awful because it's so arbitrary uh, and mm. it's so not connected to what everything that we know about domestic violence and and government response or lack of response to domestic violence in other countries mm. uh, so it's just right now a very difficult category of claims where we we previously were making a lot of progress um, as a legal community and fighting for that mm. let's go to the children. Now, help me with this. Is it the case, we have thousands of children in detention, some from this family separation um, crisis, some as unaccompanied minors and children who came on their own, as we spoke about before. Must these children to actually, let's say the unaccompanied children, do they have to go through a credible fear interview now to move out of a detention center and where would they go next? What do we know and what's happening with the children, Sarah? Unfortunately, we don't know as much as we should. Um, the, the government has, the federal government has not been forthcoming with um, really important information about these children. There was a story that broke actually this morning that there was a, a five-year-old who was... Um, persuaded to uh, actually uh, basically waive her rights under the Flores Settlement, which Mm. is a a series of litigation that that spans a couple of decades now that mandated, that resulted in a, a settlement with the federal government about the conditions around the detention of children, how long um, what what type of, um, of of arrangements must be made for them, and sort of set up a, a monitoring system so that the government had to regularly report um, to the court uh, about the detention of children. And wasn't this there a, wasn't there a limit with the Flores settlement on how yep. many days a child could be in detention? That's right. Yes, um, they they put limits on on how long a child could be in in a in a detention setting, um, and mm-hmm. also the way that children are detained under immigration law. That uh, that when they're released, often they're released to the Office of Refugee Resettlement, which resettles them in um, ho- housing situations that are more age appropriate. And then ultimately, what 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 happened? What used to happen is that 
if uh, a friend or family member could be located in the United States, that that friend or family member would be able to go through a series of, of checks and balances in order to be able to take the child into their care. Um, and that that system is being disrupted because if the child has a friend or family member to call in the United States, if that person is undocumented and they present themselves to to um, pick up the child, those folks are being targeted for deportation as well. So it's another mm. disincentive for families to come forward to claim these children uh, because they're afraid that the whole family will be deported. So it's 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 perverse um, the it's way that we nightmare. treat children. Yeah. Yeah. And, so, and in but, the meantime, this, you have these, these fragile minds, you know, these kids as this, young as two are appearing in immigration court yeah. alone. So the little five-year-old that you're speaking about, does every child who faces that court situation, are they assigned an attorney? No. Oh, boy. There okay. is, there are no attorneys and people, We the, the, there have been lawsuits filed um, with regard to that, um, arguing around that, that some of uh, that basically connecting Flores and, and other types of litigation around immigrant children uh, to the right to counsel. Uh, but there, there is none. And I wouldn't, I shouldn't say there's no right to counsel. There is a right to counsel if the child can find an attorney. There's no mandated counsel for these kids. Mm-hmm. And, and it, it's really, uh, we treat them as if it's a criminal case and the really unfortunate thing is because immigration is civil, the law hasn't evolved to to a, a point where we're we're providing that. Even though it has been litigated, unfortunately, the the last round of litigation was unsuccessful, and um, it, that was actually pretty depressing <laughs> turn turn of events um, because there were so many attorneys working on on trying to get kids ac- um, attorneys. The the irony is if a child commits a crime while crossing into the United States, at that point, they may ultimately receive um, appointed counsel because at that point, then they're facing a criminal charge. That counsel may not be skilled or knowledgeable about immigration issues, which is a problem, which also had to be litigated. And now we have a case from the Supreme Court that basically says that criminal defense attorneys have to inform defendants of the potential immigration consequences of any pleas or settlements in their criminal matters. But it's just so ironic that that kids might be in a better position um, to have access to counsel if they actually commit a crime. It's it's really unbelievable. And when you think of, as you said, the five-year-old, and then there was a little two-year-old in another article in the paper where it says something when the caseworker is in tears and some the judge is asking what language does this child speak, and it's almost ridiculously painful to consider that what this little one is saying or not saying could really bear on whether they go home, whether they're deported back to the grandparents, whether they end up in a foster placement. So I can imagine we're going to have to take a break. This is very difficult work for attorneys facing the conundrum that you're describing. Yeah. Uh, attorneys, yeah. caseworkers, and even immigration officers, um, we're all, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a shared suffering. That's for sure. Okay. We're going to take a break. We've been speaking with Sarah Rogerson, 
This is Psych Up Live. She's a clinical professor of law at Albany Law School and the director of the Immigration Law Clinic at Albany Law. She's been giving us invaluable information about the immigration crisis that goes on. Stay with us. We have much more to share. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Do you think about what you really want? Are you looking to change or perfect your environment, your value, your life? We can help. Tune in to Everyday News with the Blantons. Hosted by husband and wife team Mark and Dr. Latasha Blanton, our program will help you find the answers to make the changes in your life with inspiring guests that can help you find your sense of place in the world and how you view it. Listen live every Monday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Our humanity is a thing we take for granted, but it takes many forms and it requires much of us to fully express it. Listen to On Living, the trauma and beauty of being human with host Dr. Leanne Nguyen. This program will explore topics about survival, fulfillment, hope, connection, being fully alive to ourselves and to others. Guests are people whose life experience inspires us to reflect on these questions. Tune into On Living, broadcasting live every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Variety. Tune in to The Patricia Raskin Show on VoiceAmerica.com every Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time. This is the program that helps you turn obstacles into opportunities, challenges into solutions, and find answers to tough questions with the award-winning powerhouse voice of radio, Patricia Raskin. So tune in and call in to The Patricia Raskin Show, Mondays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now, back to Psych Up Live. Welcome back to Psych Up Live. We're speaking about the immigration crisis, and our guest today is Sarah Rogerson, an attorney and the clinical professor of law at Albany Law School. She's also the director of a very important center that's been reaching out, Immigration Law Clinic at Albany Law. Um, Sarah, we were talking about children, and I know you had one case you wanted to share because people are just, as you knew, the the nation was overwhelmed when we saw children separated from their parents. Everyone thought, what would it be if my own child was separated, and how would I find my child, and my child would want me? So let's talk a little bit about what what the legal situation involves, and maybe you can share the case that you had mentioned to me. Sure. I can tell one story from the border because this past summer, um, 300, over 300 
immigrants from the border were sent up here to Albany, New York, in the middle of upstate New York, two and a half hours away from the New York City Immigration Court, four hours away from the Buffalo-Batavia immigration system. So uh, pretty much in the middle of, 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 of nowhere in terms of immigration um, in New York State. Um, and that's because uh, some some of the county jails in the country, uh, as, as folks have been reading about, have uh, arrangements where they can house federal inmates uh, or de- and or detainees. And I make a distinction there because it's important. Um, so Albany County, which is where we are, is one of those counties. And for five years, I've had a relationship with the Albany County Sheriff, Craig Apple, where my students negotiated with the Department of Homeland Security and the local sheriff's office to do outreach to the detained population in that jail. Typically, it would hover between 50, 15 to 50 people um, over the last five years. And then the summer, within a matter of eight days, we received 300. Uh, they were put on a plane 100 at a time and flown up to the airport, which is located right next to the jail. And we set up a rapid response crisis lawyering team um, that now spans the state. There are 25 more detainees arriving today, actually, uh, and we've, we've, we're setting things up in order to respond to that need. One woman in that first group of over 300, um, there were many separated parents. The, the sheriff had asked the Department of Homeland Security not to send any separated families. He wanted nothing to do with that. What his intention was was to give folks access to counsel because in the federal detention facilities, it's much more difficult for lawyers to access these folks. So he saw it as a way to provide a benefit to, to people. And so we got right in there um, when they arrived. And one woman that I spoke with was separated from her daughter at the border. All that she had of her daughter was, well, it wasn't just her daughter. She had three children. And all that she had um, to, to, to show that they were hers were their vaccination records and two of them were actually United States citizens, and so she had their Social Security cards. And my job uh, was to take those and to... Um, she knew that she had found out that the children ended up with a sister who was documented in another part of the country, far, far on the West Coast. And my job was to take those documents and send them to her sister so that her sister had something to prove um, who these children were, who they belonged to, and to be able to start the process of, of making legal decisions on their behalf while their mom, who did nothing wrong, aside from cross a border without permission, was detained hundreds and hundreds of miles away in a state that they had never heard of. So that was, for me as an attorney, a very impactful moment of this crisis. Uh, Not just me either. I looked at the corrections officer who um, was helping us process folks and get people in and out. And I looked at him and I said, I know that your job is very difficult. Um, COs or correction officers experience PTSD um, at the rate of Afghanistan and Iraq war veterans. That's one of the things I learned this summer. And I said, I want you to know that, that what you're doing in your job today is helping me help this woman find her children and connect mm-hmm. with them. And that, and that's, I, I really feel like it's important for you to know that. And so it's been, this crisis has really brought a lot of people together 
in ways that they wouldn't have ordinarily worked together in the past because we all recognize that this is wrong, that we can't Mm. treat people this way. Mm. Um, And it's leading to a lot of really deep and meaningful conversations just about trauma generally in all aspects of our lives and professions and and work that we do. Well, let me ask you this. And, uh, you know, Valeria Lucelli wrote the book, Tell Me How It Ends. She was an interpreter in the immigration office in New York City. So I think all listeners will want to say that to you. Tell us how it ends with your lady, your mom, and the three children. Did well, Were they ever reunited, Sarah? Not not yet. Not as far as we know yet. Um, oh. But we, we, we did locate as many children as we could, and then we actually set up um, video the the sheriff just could not have been more accommodating. He um, instructed his staff to set up free video uh, communications with families who had been separated so that they could sit in, in, in a room in front of a camera and actually have a conversation with their child and see them. They also have um, free telephone calls that they can make to friends and family from inside the, from from where they're they're staying inside the the jail housing units, so that they don't have to be transported to you know a phone or a visiting area that have phones in their in their housing units, and they don't have to pay for um, the minutes that they use um, for a certain period of time. So that th- those types of small, seemingly small concessions um, from the jail staff. Um, actually made a world of difference for these folks. I, I ended up at the jail at 10 o'clock at night um, connecting um, a brother to his sister. Since he was eight, over the age of 18, he was separated from her. She was 13, uh, is 13, and um, they have yet to be reunited, but they've had many, many phone calls um, that have really boosted morale on both both sides of the equation. Um, you know, every, family. everything... I hear, and I know my colleagues would hear, is that we know you never separate siblings. You never separate psychologically parents and children. So I think as attorneys, you've been really humanitarian first responders in this crisis, Um, just by reason of, as you say, connecting them with the phone. I guess I want our listeners to know that when I I, um, researched more about Sarah, one of the um, clips that I heard was the sheriff who was receiving all these folks into detention saying, there is no way I would take these folks without having Sarah Rogerson and the law clinic backing it up because they have to be treated with respect. And I was so moved by, you know, his position and, um, he really underscored the importance that attorneys are playing um, in this crisis. You know, with with that in mind, let me ask you, because you are the director of the Immigration Center, what is it that your students and even your colleagues are finding most difficult about this situation? Yeah, so I... Vicarious trauma is part of what we do as immigration lawyers. Um, I learned that lesson very early on when I was in law school and took a clinic and did the immigration clinic, and my first client was an asylum seeker from the Republic of Congo who had endured awful trauma uh, and torture, uh, just brutal torture. It's still one of the worst cases I've ever seen, and I, it was my first. <laughs> and, and part of my journey um, and in terms of 
where I thought my career was headed um, was altered, right, by that case and my response to it. And um, we, as part of the pedagogy for clinical legal education, we incorporate vicarious trauma because we know the students are impacted by that. We know um, that, and there's been a lot of work in our field around shared suffering among humanitarian attorneys. Um, and there there are some great resources out there, and I, I always refer my students to them um, as part of this. And we always keep an eye out we, for um, burnout and compassion fatigue, and I teach my students what that means, and we have, I ask them um, to, to think about things like the professional quality of life survey and the adverse childhood, the ACEs survey, so that, so that they understand um, self-awareness and then the impact of the work and what to look out for so that we can all be responsible. I also really emphasize for my colleagues and for my students the importance of checking in with mental health professionals. Um, I think there's still a lot of stigma, especially in the legal field around that. Um, there's a lot of fear that if I, you know, if I, if I go to visit a therapist, does that mean that um, I have to disclose some sort of fitness issue for the bar exam, things like that. And mm-hmm. I, I've been working with some colleagues to sort of um, really attack that stigma head on and say, no, look, um, this is just a part of professional responsibility, taking care of yourself. And and I tell the students, I'm pretty open about the fact that I I check in with a therapist pretty regularly, um, especially around these types of crisis situations. I'm I'm in therapy now um, because I think it's important. It's an important part of, of, of professional responsibility to, to seek out support to help you walk through your reaction to trauma and make sure that you're serving your client the best you possibly can. So the law school here has also started incorporating um, wellness programming into the, the school life uh, and has brought on a, a counselor that's available to students um, that they can speak to in-house um, and as a partnership with, with another school in the area. So that's, those are just a few of the things that are happening in the legal profession um, here at Albany Law School that really need to, to happen more broadly in our profession. Uh, we have some of the highest rates of alcoholism and substance abuse in this profession, and there's a reason for that. Mm. Uh, I'm, I'm so delighted to hear you say this for all our listeners and all our professionals out there. We say whenever we intervene with therapists and caregivers um, and attorneys now who are asking for care of the caregiver workshops, just as no trauma victim can heal alone, no caregiver can hold the anguish or the pain or the memories day after day without a support community to help them heal. And as you say, whether that's professional therapists or programs that allow for it, it's incredibly important for you folks to be able to sustain. I want to, as we're we're almost out of time, so Sarah, if you had to give a a take-home message to our listeners who could be people who have all kinds of feelings about the immigration crisis, what would it be? It would be that everybody knows 
or or has reason to know of someone who's working in the system, whether it's a deportation officer or somebody who works for the TSA, a TSA agent like my uncle is, um, or like me, an immigration lawyer, you might have one in your life, that as much as we want to help the the children, and I know there was an outpouring of support for the children, and and that was beautiful to see, um, there's this hidden layer of concern and, and shared suffering um, reach out to the people in your life that are working on, in immigration issues now, uh, no matter what side of the issue they're on, because I've talked with people on law enforcement side as well as care, you know, the, the advocate side, and they're all suffering right now. Everybody has been seeing and hearing things that are just awful. And so if you're feeling powerless, if you feel like there's nothing you can do, another way to support the community that's trying to help is to reach out to them and check in with them and say, hey, I know things are probably pretty stressful for you right now. Is there anything, you know, do you want to talk about it? Mm, It's a wonderful message. And just very quickly, what would be the um, link that people would go to if they wanted information about getting an attorney with regard to immigration issues? So there are two. There's the, um, the, the most immigration lawyers um, are members of the American Immigration Lawyers Association, or AILA, A-I-L-A, and they have a find attorney, find an attorney function um, that, that sorts by geography. Those are typically paid attorneys, but you may be able to find individuals who are willing to represent cases pro bono uh, or for free. And then there's the Executive Office for Immigration Review, which is actually a government immigration office. That's where the, the immigration judges are housed. It's a depart- part of the Department of Justice. But on their website, they have lists of free legal service providers that are organized by by state. And so you can click state by state and find organizations near you. And if they are overloaded and can't take your case, they will often provide referrals to other organizations that they respect that may not be on the list. Okay. Sarah, I can't thank you enough for the work you've done and that your students continue to do. Thank you so much for being a guest on Psych Up Live. I think so many people will benefit from hearing this show in live as we have and as a podcast. Thanks again. Thank you. Okay, um, I want to thank my listeners. Remember, you can hear this show and any prior show as a podcast by 6.30 this evening, Eastern. This will be a podcast on my site, on the podcast app of your iPhone, iTunes, as well as under um, Voice America Psych Up Live. Remember to drop me a comment or a question at radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Until next time, please take care. Thanks. And be listening. Thank you for tuning in to Psych Up Live. Please join Dr. Suzanne Phillips for another edition of our programming next Thursday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll talk more next week. 